today I'm going to suggest um, that we get a better bicycle lock, basically. Um, if we talked about the lock as that thing which under certain combinations might open us up to evil doing. Basically, today's uh, lecture is part of an ongoing project to explore the interaction between moral enhancement and our duty to try and eliminate evil doing. Now, I shall only be able to talk about uh, a very small part of this project, but I'm sure that we can address more issues uh, in the question series. So, we each have a moral obligation to refrain from evil doing. And yet, as we all know, evils persist in forms like child abuse, gay bashing, sexual slavery, mass killings, the reckless dumping of toxic waste, and I think also are fraudulent mortgage practices that knowingly rob people of homes and pensions, leaving them absolutely destitute. Now, scientific advances offer a possible future solution to the challenge of eliminating evildoing, and that is the moral enhancement of human beings through biomedical and biotechnological means. There's growing evidence that our moral psychology can be altered through biological interventions. Scientists report a positive correlation between increased levels of serotonin in the brain and an increased aversion to directly harming others. These are in the so-called uh, trolley cases, right? They're less willing to push the fat man to block the trolley. And we know that oxytocin, which is a hormone that's uh, commonly um, known for its role in uh, breastfeeding and childbirth, uh, can promote trust in humans. Researchers have also identified a possible biological basis for antisocial personality disorder and certain brain structures <coughs> involved in race aversion. Now, of course, at present, our understanding of the biological basis of our moral dispositions is very limited at best, as is our ability to intervene in our biology to promote positive moral changes. It's therefore unlikely that we will possess moral enhancements sufficiently effective and safe to act as preventive measures against evildoing <coughs> any time in the near future. But such biomedical interventions, I think, are possible in principle. And since the direction and rate of scientific progress in research is largely determined by human choice, if we thought we had good reasons to develop moral enhancements, they could become a reality sooner rather than later. Of course, I'm not suggesting, and I think no one is, that by popping a pill we would become resistant to evildoing. <coughs> This is particularly <coughs> true when we realize that the moral failings associated with evil cannot be traced exclusively to the psychology of the individual. Situational and structural forces, um, our upbringing, culture, not to mention group dynamics, are all powerful forces that can shape our susceptibility to evil doing. What moral enhancements can do, however, is reduce the probability of becoming culpably involved in evil doing by strengthening moral dispositions and by increasing the efficacy and the reliability of moral education. Now the question driving my overall research project is this. Assuming we had relatively safe and effective moral enhancements, would we then have a duty, not just permissible, but a duty, to use such interventions to reduce the probability of evildoing? Now the answer depends on a variety of factors which I cannot even imagine to try and address today, but one of them is the magnitude of the proposed moral enhancement. Knowing how far we might be required to morally enhance ourselves 
is relevant to determining whether our duties regarding evil doing extend to the use of moral enhancement in the first place. This is the question that I shall address today. So, assuming that we would be able to choose between moderate and stringent moral enhancement, how far should we enhance ourselves? But first I want to say something about why we might have a duty to minimize evildoing by resorting to what many would consider very drastic measures. The answer concerns the nature of evildoing, which I identify as what I call an attack on morality. Now I cannot defend this view here of evildoing, but I shall offer a quick summary of it since I believe that it offers a deeper analysis of the moral gravity of evildoing and helps explain the need for moral enhancement, not justify, but at least why we might need it. <coughs> now, this account of evildoing can also help identify the target of moral enhancement, what needs to be enhanced. So let's look at evildoing. As I see it, what sets evil actions apart from other wrongs are their unique relationship to morality, expressed in the idea of an attack on morality. Generally speaking, evildoing constitutes a de facto rejection of the authority of objective morality. Evil acts do not merely transgress against morality, they are antagonistic to it, and I'll explain what this means, making the realization of morality in human life extremely difficult, if not impossible. For example, one of the fundamental tenets of morality is the idea that all human beings are endowed with equal moral status. Genocidal acts deny this idea in theory and in practice, creating a reality in which not only are some people viewed and treated as though they lacked any relevant moral status, but victims and bystanders might also internalize this dehumanizing view. This is the sense in which genocide is antagonistic to the realization of the more fundamental of equal moral status in our lives. Denial, however, is not the only way in which morality can be attacked, nor is the idea of a shared humanity the only fundamental element in morality. There are, in fact, what I call the five fundamentals of morality, or fundamental constituents of morality. So let me briefly sketch what I mean by this and how I think they can be attacked. Morality is a very rich and complex system, but I think it's possible to analyze it in terms of five elements which together form the basic structure and core of objective morality as an action-guiding system. Now, I think we can think of them as answering five questions. First one is, what is the good which renders moral action intelligible as a matter of practical reason? So, not in terms of consequentialist reasoning, um, giving the act its moral worth or this value, but in terms of practical reason, the rationale for acting morally. And of course, what is the role of this good vis-a-vis human conduct? That's question one. Second question, what does it mean for there to be a moral distinction between right and wrong actions? What does this distinction entail? Third, what is the basis of practical deliberation in terms both of the content and the form? Can we identify some core elements there? Four, who is a responsible moral agent? To whom do we attribute moral agency? And five, who is a moral subject, deserving of due consideration and respect? Now, these are the five fundamentals. Evil doing can be antagonistic to morality by denying, perverting, or destroying one or more of these five fundamentals. Denial, the first mode of antagonism, consists in negating the core of morality, 
It is present in the claim, anything goes, which, according to Stuart Hampshire, and I'm quoting, is a sign of evil because it calls for the destruction of the human world of customary moral claims precariously established within the setting of natural human interests. The claim anything goes denies the fundamental moral axiom that there is a right and a wrong way of treating human beings, that people are not just objects to be used or ignored at will. An act is right when it is justified based on the relevant moral reasons. Now, when it comes to harmful conduct, justification excludes two reasons for moral consideration, the desire to harm another and the power or ability to act on this desire. The latter is expressed in saying might is not right. This is what it means for there to be a moral distinction between right and wrong conduct in the <coughs> first place, which is why it is false that anything goes in human interaction. The second mode of antagonism is perversion. It consists in replacing the fundamentals of morality with their contraries. Perversion usurps the authority of objective morality only to subvert it. For example, among the fundamentals are the basic moral reasons that underlie practical reasoning. Harm and suffering and the desire not to harm, sorry, and the desire not to suffer or be harmed are among these basic reasons. Now, generally speaking, the moral importance of harm and suffering means that there's always a reason, though not necessarily a decisive one, to prevent their occurrence or alleviate existing harm and suffering. Sadism, which takes a person's desire not to suffer as a reason in favour of inflicting <coughs> suffering on her, is therefore a perversion of this particular fundamental of morality. The final mode of antagonism is destruction, which consists in making the realisation of the fundamentals of morality in human life extremely difficult, if not impossible. Now, first among these five fundamentals is the good for the sake of which we act morally. This good I identify as a basic striving inherent in each of us to live and to live well. We act for the sake of this good when we protect and promote it. Now, evil doing has a particularly harmful effect on the lives of victims, making it extremely difficult, if not impossible at times, to continue living and prospering in any minimal or sometimes significant sense. In this way, evil doing can destroy the realization of this striving to live and to prosper that is so fundamental to people's lives. The evil acts are antagonistic to the fundamentals of morality in the sense that they constitute their denial, perversion or destruction. It does not mean that the denial of the authority of morality is explicit or perceived as denial that I need to be thinking I'm denying objective morality. That perverted mental states or processes are experienced as perverted or that the destructive consequences are perceived as being detrimental to realizing objective morality. I know that I'm harming, I don't necessarily think about morality. What is necessary is that the modes of antagonism originate in and express the actor's moral agency, since evil doing is not something that just happens by accident. Rather, it is the result of an act intentionally performed by a responsible moral agent fully aware of the seriousness of the harmful consequences to others, though not necessarily of the consequences to objective morality. An act is defined as evil doing then when it meets four conditions. When it is wrong, results in serious harm to others, originates in an intention 
based on the correct belief that the act will cause or <coughs> risk such harm, and where the perpetrator's mental states and or the act's consequences are antagonistic to morality through its fundamentals. Now, what distinguishes evildoing from wrongdoing is the combination of these four features. While none of them is unique to evildoing, together they constitute what I call an attack. The moral urgency of minimizing evildoing is therefore greater than that of minimizing wrongdoing in general, and possibly of naturally occurring suffering. If all else is equal, indifference to the death of genocide victims is worse than indifference to the victims of an earthquake, say. For such indifference signals to perpetrators, victims and bystanders that the killing can continue with impunity, thereby further spreading the mental states that deny, pervert or destroy the core of morality while bringing about the deliberate and wrongful destruction of human beings. Indeed, it is important to emphasize that an indispensable part of what makes evil doing an attack on morality is the fact that serious harm, suffering and victimhood are essential to it. Serious harm, as I define it, ranges from harms that make life significantly worse in some respect to extremely severe harms that impoverish a life. Significant harms include things like the intense pain of a sustained cigarette burn. Think of someone putting a cigarette out on, on a baby. Or being denied control over one's life on issues of marriage and sexual health. Impoverishing harms, however, are worse. They make it impossible or very nearly so to live a fully human life or successfully engage with basic human goods. Impoverishing harms can reduce life to the mere survival of a biological organism, leaving little or no room for the expression of the person as a unique individual. Now, this was achieved in the Nazi concentration camps through the creation of the Musulmana, the living corpses that Primo Levi described, and this is a quote, as the drowned, forming the backbone of the camp, an anonymous mass continually renewed and always identical of non-men who march and labor in silence, the divine spark dead in them, already too empty to really suffer. Other examples of impoverishing harms include an inability to form or sustain relationships and feeling a deep and perversive sense of worthlessness. Now, this is far from an exhaustive list, and you can get one if you want, but it gives us a good idea why we might have a duty to employ drastic measures, including moral enhancement, to reduce the probability that we would intentionally and knowingly inflict such harms on another person. I mentioned before that there is no such thing as accidental evildoing. This means that the fact that evildoing results in serious harm to others is no mistake, but the result of the perpetrator's deliberate choice to act in a way that he correctly believed would risk or cause such harm. This excludes from the category of evildoing certain types of seriously harmful recklessness or negligence, where the magnitude of the harm was neither intended nor correctly foreseen. One example is the reckless driving that kills a pedestrian. Now, some people think it's evil. I don't, because inflicting such harm was never the driver's intention, nor would he have knowingly decided to risk serious harm had he sincerely believed it a likely result of his actions. What happens in the case of such dangerous driving is a kind of self-deception about the risk of serious harm occurring here and now as a result of my particular actions. 
Okay? Even though I know in principle that acts of this kind result or carry such risks. Another example, this kind of criminal negligence, is the series of human errors that in 2003 <coughs> led to a vitamin B1 deficiency in a new baby, um, soy-based soy baby formula. Now, this resulted in the death of two infants and left nine others with severe neurological damage. Now, though the harm clearly did not just happen as a result of fault-free conduct, there were some series of mistakes and, and culpable negligence there, there is a sense in which it sort of just happened to the employees responsible for the formula. We all make mistakes, some of which carry potentially dire consequences. To some extent, it is a matter of bad luck that a particular mistake results in serious, even deadly harm to others. Now, while actors should be held accountable for such harmful actions, I think that the actions are not evil as I understand the concept. And what this means for moral enhancement is that solely from the perspective of minimizing evil doing, the mental states that we should target are those that lead to the intention to knowingly risk or inflict serious harm on others. Preventing mistakes and self-deception is not our aim, unless our concern shifts to reducing wrongdoing and human suffering in general, which we have very good reasons to do, but that is another matter. The focus on the perpetrator's intention and belief concerning the resulting harm also means that evil doing need not originate in malevolent intentions or have the suffering of others as their end. The harm of evildoing can also be intended as means to an end, or accepted as the side effect of pursuing my end. The motives for evildoing are diverse and complex. Some motives have no inherent connection to evildoing and might even be morally laudable. They include, they include things like fear, anger, desire for self-preservation, ambition, boredom, thrill-seeking, conformism, desire for social acceptance or attention, wounded pride, sense of honor, obedience to authority, believing that the act is justified, and a willingness to sacrifice yourself for a greater cause. So these can be, like I said, both neutral or morally laudable. But the intention to knowingly risk or inflict serious harm on others can also result from motives that are antagonistic to morality, such as willful defiance of morality or indifference to its authority. Sadism, which I said was a perversion, as is cruelty, malicious envy, pervasive indifference to the suffering of others, the belief that others lack relevant moral status and the desire to dehumanize them. <coughs> to reduce the probability of people becoming culpably involved in evildoing then, we would need to enhance them in such a way that motives that are morally neutral or laudable would not lead to evil deeds. In addition, we should eliminate or at least attenuate the motives that are antagonistic to morality. Removing the latter would be morally good not only for society, but also for the enhanced individual, both in terms of his moral character and prudentially, so that they don't end up in Broadmoor. So let me say a few words now about moral enhancement in the context of evil doing. My understanding of moral enhancement is indebted to the work of Thomas Douglas, who's here in the audience. Douglas defines moral enhancement as a change that may reasonably be expected to result in a person having morally better future motives, taken in some, than she would otherwise have had. Now, motives are the psychological states and processes that lead to action. 
In more bioenhancement, the change in motives is caused through biomedical or biotechnological means. Now, our concern is with more bioenhancement as preventive measure against evildoing. The enhancement should therefore result not simply in morally better motives than the person would otherwise have had, but in motives that we can reasonably expect will significantly reduce the probability of becoming culpably involved in <coughs> evildoing or failing to do what morality requires in response to the evils of others. Moral enhancement can promote this end, first, by attenuating motives that are inherently antagonistic to morality, as we saw, sadism, enjoying another person's horrific suffering, and second, by improving our moral resources. Now, by moral resources, I understand the mental states and processes that underlie our capacity for moral agency and moral conduct. These include cognitive, affective, and volitional resources like moral imagination and the capacity for independent judgment, a sense of fairness, sensitivity to the devaluation and harming of others, feelings of altruism, sympathy, and a sense of responsibility for the well-being of others, as well as a capacity for impulse control and moral courage. Central to our moral resources are also correct moral beliefs about who deserves moral treatment, what constitutes harm, <coughs> and what can justify harming others. Now, this may seem elementary, but most evil acts are committed by people who believe their actions are either relatively harmless or justified, or the narratives that we've been talking about. Pedophiles, for example, often rationalize their sexual encounters with young children as beneficial, as a way of liberating the child's innate sexuality. Harmful actions are believed to be justified when the victim is seen as deserving the harm in question, or as someone who should be excluded from moral consideration altogether. In South Africa, for example, violent assault and rape of lesbians is on the rise, and it's rationalized as a way of correcting their sexual orientation. And as we all know, one of the things that makes genocide possible is people's readiness to believe that not every being with a human face is human or should be treated as such. Now, it's possible, only possible, that by changing our motives, moral enhancement would make us less receptive to false moral beliefs about harm and moral status. And we do know of some people who grew up in extremely racist <coughs> environments, but who were resistant to these beliefs, even though their own family um, adhered to them. So all of this, of course, is conditional on our ability to identify and modify the biological basis which I assume underlies our moral resources and antagonistic motives. Supported by the right educational programs, then, moral enhancement could be expected to have the following effects, which together would reduce the probability that we would commit evildoing or fail to respond to it as we should. First, moral enhancement could create a better fit between self-interest and morality, reducing the likelihood that we would experience the demands of morality as conflicting with our psychological makeup, desires, beliefs, goals, and so on. And second, moral enhancement could strengthen our moral resolve and courage so that when we do feel that morality conflicts with self-interest, or when doing what morality demands requires extraordinary courage and sacrifice, we would nevertheless do what is right rather than what is easier. But what exactly does morality demand of us with respect to evildoing? And does it require the use of moral enhancement? 
If so, just how far should we morally enhance ourselves, assuming that we would have the ability to fine-tune our enhancement? Should we, for example, aim to make more saints and heroes of us all, ready to devote our lives single-mindedly to fighting evil doing, whatever the cost may be? Or should we opt for a more moderate form of moral enhancement? Knowing how demanding a duty to, moral to morally enhance ourselves may be, can help us assess whether we have such a duty in the first place. So this is the main part of um, the argument now. I begin by asking why, if we were to have a duty to use moral enhancement to minimize evildoing, we might be required to morally perfect ourselves in the ways that I mentioned. I can think of three reasons which correspond to the three kinds of obligations that we have with respect to evildoing. First and strongest is a negative duty to refrain from committing evil deeds, either as principal actors or as accomplices to the evils of others. Second, and conditional upon the cost involved, is a positive duty of beneficence in response to evildoing. It includes as acts of rescue, reporting evildoing, supporting the creation and operation of institutions that fight evil, and in general, refusing to normalize evil by condemning evil acts and holding perpetrators accountable. Our final duty is a forward-looking obligation to cultivate the moral resources necessary for refraining from evil and responding correctly to the evils of others, both in ourselves, cultivating these moral resources both in ourselves and in those for whose moral development we are responsible, notably children. Now this requires the recognizing the potentially harmful effects of situational factors, culture and group dynamics on things like moral perception, judgment, sense of responsibility and the willingness to help and harm others, all of which can result in our culpable involvement in evil. Let's turn to the first reason, grounded in our obligation to refrain from evildoing. Fulfilling this duty might seem simple enough, but there are situations where doing what morality demands requires extraordinary moral clarity, courage and determination. Now, Here's one <coughs> example from a prison camp during, during the Bosnian War. A father is forced at knife point to rape his daughter in front of other prisoners and guards. Now, should he refuse, both will be killed. He knows this. So the father decides to comply, hoping that this will give his daughter at least a chance at life. Let's assume that this is his motivation here. Now, such a situation results from the deliberate attempt to morally corrupt people by forcing them to choose between inflicting impoverishing, even lethal, harm on an innocent victim and having that victim suffer an even worse fate if possible. Creating such a situation is an instance of what Claudia Card calls diabolical evil. Now, it's not clear what morality requires here. When another person's fate depends on our choice, and when all options result in the person becoming a victim of evil, is it important to preserve our moral integrity and refrain from evil actions, or should we care more about minimizing evil doing by agreeing to inflict what may be the lesser evil? Now, agent relativists think that we should care more about our own actions. Whether or not we commit evil doing, the victim will suffer horrific harms. We could be thinking that we're splitting hairs here. And since those who orchestrated this diabolical choice cannot be trusted, we should not assume that by inflicting the harm ourselves, we will spare the victim a worse fate. 
On this view, then, our duty is to refrain from evil doing. Agent neutralists would disagree. Given the choice, what matters most is to try and minimize the occurrence and severity of evil doing, irrespective of the identity of perpetrators. Sometimes, even a small chance at life is better than almost certain death, despite the suffering involved. Other times, the suffering may be so horrific that death is the lesser evil. The point is that as long as we can identify a lesser evil, if such a thing exists, we have a duty to bring it about by committing the deed ourselves or through inaction letting others commit it. Whichever side we take in this debate, I think it's clear that doing our duty here would require exceptional moral strength, determination, and clarity of thought. This is also true of situations where the price of not committing evil is ourselves becoming the victim of evil. <coughs> now, given the choice between torturing an innocent person, say, and being tortured ourselves, would we have the moral fortitude to do what is right? We might hope that we would, but we cannot be sure that we possess the required moral resources and psychological strength. Now, at the moment, there isn't much that we can do about this, except engage our moral imagination and cultivate our moral character more generally. And even with moral imagination, can't really think of people going around thinking how they should treat their family and loved ones in such a horrific situation. That would be horrible for moral relations. However, with moral enhancement, we might be able to significantly strengthen our moral resources. So if we're serious about reducing the probability of being culpably involved in evil, and if doing our duty in morally abnormal circumstances requires extraordinary moral character, then this is what we should aim at through moral enhancement. Or so goes the argument. Now, I disagree. It seems to me that the argument gets the role of moral enhancement backwards. Our aim should be not to equip people to respond correctly to situations at the extremes of morality, but to prevent the creation of such diabolical situations in the first place. Now, this we can arguably do by morally enhancing people just enough to significantly reduce the probability that they will commit evil under normal circumstances of fear, temptation, boredom, and so on. If we reduce the occurrence of evil, particularly collective evil doing, there will be no need to create moral heroes of us all. There is, however, a second reason why exceptional, why exceptional moral resources might be needed to minimize evildoing, and it has to do with our positive duties regarding the evils of others. What sustains evildoing and helps it spread, particularly collective evildoing, is not just the actions of principal actors and accomplices, but also the inaction of bystanders who are in a position to know what is happening, help victims, and influence the choices of perpetrators by letting them know they can't get away with the evil. Minimizing evildoing requires, therefore, not only that some people refrain from evil acts, but also correctly responding to the evils of others. Professionals like politicians, reporters, social workers, as well as institutions like the UN, have a particular duty to correctly identify, prevent, and respond to evil. They are what Arne Johann Wettelsen calls bystanders by formal appointment. But evil doing is also maintained and resisted through the inaction <coughs> of ordinary people who, are, who can influence how various institutions respond to evil. Think of the role of citizen journalism in the Arab Spring. As moral agents, we can also keep alert for signs of evil around us and respond appropriately. In the UK alone, for example, 
25% of young adults report having been severely maltreated as children, with about one in nine having experienced sexual abuse. Now this is something that's all around us, and similar figures are found worldwide according to the World Health Organization. Addressing such widespread and largely hidden evil requires not only the work of professionals, but also the more vigilance and courage of ordinary people who might be in a position to know an abused child or perpetrator and offer aid. Responding to the evils of others correctly also requires that we avoid identifying with perpetrators or maintain normal and normalizing relations with known perpetrators of evils. And Claudia Card has written quite a lot about this. Think, for example, of a famous singer who agrees to perform at the wedding of a notorious crime family. What this analysis shows is that responding correctly to the evils of others requires a significantly higher degree of moral sensitivity, imagination, altruism, self-control, determination and courage than most people exhibit or possess. Sometimes it requires the single-minded devotion of the moral saint and the willingness of the moral hero to incur great risks for the sake of others. So should we enhance ourselves to such a stringent degree? At first glance, again, this may seem unnecessary. If we each do our bit, according to our abilities and situation vis-à-vis evil-doing, there will be no need for all of us to risk or devote our lives to combating evils. All we need to do is enhance ourselves sufficiently to increase the likelihood that we will, in fact, do our bit. However, one problem with this argument is that it assumes that moral enhancements will be deployed more or less universally um, and at the same time. Now, I think this is highly unlikely. We can talk more about how this would actually be realized in society, but one likely scenario is a situation where moral enhancement might be more prevalent in one society, but not in another. Now, if I'm right about this, then individuals in the enhanced society will still face a duty to correctly respond to the evils that occur in the sort of normal or unenhanced society. And moderate enhancements might simply (coughs) not be enough to ensure that we act in this way. Ultimately, however, this is an empirical question. So let me turn now to a normative one. More important, I think, is the issue of fairness raised by moderate enhancement. Moral enhancements are unlikely to be an insurance against evil, as we said. It's more reasonable to think of them as reducing the probability that we will commit evil doing or fail to respond to evil appropriately. This is particularly true if we aim at moderate enhancement. But this means that some people will still find themselves in proximity to evil. It will then be at least partly a matter of luck that some of these people, people in proximity to evil, possess the required moral resources to resist evil doing and respond to it correctly. These will be individuals who are naturally endowed with a very high, highly developed um, set of moral resources, or who have had the right moral education, probably both of them. But why should they bear a greater moral burden than the rest of us who, we assume, will only be moderately enhanced? when it is in our power to strengthen our moral resources even further. We have no excuse of saying we can't do anything about it. Can a fair division of moral labor require less than the equal moral enhancement of all persons? And if highly developed moral resources are needed for refraining from evil and responding to it appropriately, then as a matter of fairness, 
we should all aim at enhancing ourselves to a degree close to that of the moral saint and the moral hero. The idea that we should aim for more stringent rather than moderate enhancement is further supported by our forward-looking duty to cultivate the moral resources necessary for minimizing our part in evil. This is the third reason for a stringent view of moral by, for moral enhancement. Such enhancement may simply be the best way to inoculate ourselves against the possibility that we would become culpably involved in evil doing through situational factors, culture and group dynamics. Even if moral enhancements can only reduce the probability of such involvement, shouldn't we try and maximally reduce this probability? <coughs> Many righteous people who rescued Jews during the Holocaust at grave risk to themselves reported that it was impossible for them to have acted otherwise, and of course they mean psychologically impossible. Shouldn't we all try and make it psychologically difficult, if not impossible, to fail to do, for us to fail to do what morality requires? I think not, and the reason is that stringent moral enhancement conflicts with what I take to be the basic fact of morality and determinant of the moral <coughs> point of view, namely the separateness of persons. So let me explain what I mean by this, and here I will end. To take up the moral point of view is to acknowledge that other people are distinct from me, existing as separate beings with separate needs, desire, goals, values, beliefs, and so on. It means to view others not simply as things to be used or ignored relative to our own needs, but first and foremost as beings deserving of due consideration and respect, the most basic expression of which is to consider how our actions affect other people. Simply put, we each have our own life to live, our own identity to be. Recognizing this fact as imposing some sort of constraint on how we may act and treat others is what it means to be a moral agent in recognizing others as moral subjects on the most basic level. This is what I mean by inhabiting the moral point of view. And this is also what I mean by the separateness of persons, the fact that we are all distinct beings with our own lives to live. And I consider this separateness as the basic fact of morality. It's not a matter of deriving ought from is, but of instinctively recognizing the normative force of the fact the other person is a distinct being with a separate life to lead. Returning now to moral enhancement, why would a stringent enhancement conflict with the separateness of persons? The reason is that the rationale of morality is to prevent people from being treated simply as means to an end, and this includes moral ends. It is this rationale which explains why we have a duty to refrain from evil in the first place to strengthen our moral resources as preventive, preventive measures against becoming culpably involved in evil and to resist the evils of others at some cost to ourselves. But the cost of fulfilling our positive duty of beneficence cannot be so great that it effectively turns us into instruments for preventing the victimization of others. It should not make it psychologically impossible or extremely difficult not to devote a significant part of our lives to helping victims and resisting evil. <coughs> now at the moment, it's a matter of personal choice and luck that someone has the moral resources to fight evil and decides to make this fight her life's goal. But if we are to respect the separateness of persons, we cannot make this choice the default moral and psychological position for all persons. It has to remain a supererogatory choice, morally praiseworthy, but beyond the call of duty. 
If we think that it's unfair that some people make great sacrifices in the fight against evil, while others do very little, then what we should do is cultivate our moral character through education, and if possible, moral enhancement, so that each of us would indeed do our bit in fighting evil. Even if we're not at the level of those endowed with exceptional moral determination and courage, we will no longer be free riding on the moral conduct of others. So to conclude, I want to point to a possible moral conflict stemming from the degree of moral enhancement required by positive and negative duties. It's possible that to significantly reduce the probability of becoming perpetrators of evil, we will have to enhance ourselves to quite a stringent degree. This will not be a case of treating ourselves as means, but of simply doing our duty of not committing evil. The problem is that the same stringent degree of moral enhancement might be enough to make it psychologically difficult, if not impossible, to refrain from what we properly call supererogatory acts. Such enhancement might then be a case of treating people as means only. Again, whether the situation will ever arise is an empirical question, but it does present us with an interesting dilemma. My view is that we should respect the separateness of persons and opt for moderate moral enhancement. If enough people were enhanced and the right educational programs were established, we should be able to work together towards minimizing evildoing without sacrificing too much. However, if thinking about evildoing in the context of moral enhancement has taught me anything, it is that what morality demands of us with respect to evil is probably more than most people, including myself, are comfortable admitting. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Sloane. Now, um, oh, a sea of hands, but I'm going to ask Tom Douglas to have yep. the first question since he was our de facto commentator. So take it away, Tom. Okay, so, uh, so this is a question about um, something that you were saying towards the end, and I think the idea was that um, oh, we shouldn't pursue stringent forms of moral enhancement, ones that would make us moral saints or moral heroes, because uh, that would involve treating ourselves as mere means. But, but I just wasn't sure why it would be that the magnitude of the moral enhancement that would determine whether we were treating ourselves as means. Rather, it seemed to be something about the psychological mechanism by which it works. So if an enhancement worked by um, sort of introducing uh, impulses into us that just kind of pop up and make us do things without us thinking about it further, then we might think that that's kind of, if we pursued that kind of enhancement, we'd be uh, turning ourselves into automata and we wouldn't, and that would be using ourselves as a means. Um, but if, if an enhancement works by doing the opposite, by removing certain kinds of uh, impulses that tend to lead us to do immoral things and giving us, in a sense, more, more moral agency or more freedom to, to decide what to do, then uh, that could be a, a very stringent moral enhancement. We could, uh, but it, I, I wouldn't see why that would be treating ourselves as means. Right, um, good question. I don't think that um, it would be treating ourselves as a means if all we did uh, was to remove what we called uh, antagonistic or, or you called uh, contramoral, I think, uh, emotions. Things that are just bad, like cruelty, uh, uh, the ability to enjoy another person's great suffering, not just small discomfort and so on. Um, because the thing is, 
many people um, are, I think, sufficiently equipped not to commit evil doing on a regular basis. Okay, and uh, some people are even equipped not to commit evil when the temptation, the cost is very great. They might lose their job, right, or, or they might lose a, a great bonus or something. But uh, that doesn't mean that they have the more resources to respond to evil necessarily. And I think that um, <coughs> this is what I'm concerned about. Because we might think that, I mean, if moral enhancement isn't going to be uniform and there's still going to be evil to respond to it, at least in the transitional stage, right, then um, we might not be able to respond to it. We might not have the moral courage to do so or um, the moral insight. So the question is, should we enhance ourselves sufficiently so that it sort of becomes you know, psychologically impossible for us not to respond. And I've met some individuals, they're quite exceptional, who um, experience their lives in this way. And it does require an enormous sacrifice from them. So, you know, this is sort of their luck in life and their choice, of course, right? Um, the question is, should we <coughs> do this for everyone? Yes. Okay, in front of you. I have not read any of this literature on moral enhancement. In fact, I never heard the term before. And so right away, I think of eugenics. How is this going to be different from eugenics? Mm -hmm. How is it going? What are you envisioning as the mechanism for doing this? Do you do it to yourself? Do you envision the state requiring it, like vaccinations, mm -hmm. for so that it's done to children? Is it done to people against their will? And what is it that's done? Is it like taking a pill or getting a shot? or? Um, how does it work? Uh, right away I think of the possibility of somebody being so persuaded that it would be so important to enhance people morally, that they'd be prepared to abort fetuses if the DNA indicated that they yep. might be deficient in moral resources, mm -hmm. that they might prohibit people from reproducing if they are deficient in moral resources and refuse to become morally enhanced. Um, what do you... Well, I think, first of all, in general, let's say that any method that is that aims at um, reducing suffering and reducing wrongdoing or evil um, has its limit, right? I mean, we don't want to create more suffering and commit evil as a means to do that, okay? So, of course, just because we can doesn't mean we should. Um, as to the can method, um, it might be pills, it might be um, um, uh, pre implantation genetic diagnosis of embryos, it might be... Um, it might be genetic um, therapy to the adult. It might be various things. Uh, oxytocin, for example, can be administered with a spray. Uh, you can give serotonin with a pill. So th these are technical things. Um, I think they are important, though, for example, if the best or the most reliable way of um, uh, promoting, let's say, uh, the, the genetic basis of morality would be um, by looking at embryos, Right? What does that mean for um, reproductive autonomy? What does that mean about a woman's right over her body and so on? Mm -hmm. But more to the point, I think that um, if we were to introduce these enhancements, they shouldn't be introduced just in one form because there are different classes of people um, that might sort of deserve or require uh, the enhancement for various reasons. So, if we know that some people um, have committed enormous uh, crimes, right, um, and they are very likely to do so again, mm -hmm. then uh, in their case, 
the enhancement might be both mandatory and even if it involves uh, a, you know, a more than reasonable risk to them, to their own health, we might think that this, you know, they, they should still take it. Or like at least clockwork orange. Hmm? Maybe, right? Hmm? Maybe something like that. Um, again, we have to look at the risk, and it might be given to them as a choice. You, know, you can spend your life in prison, or you can risk this procedure. And we think that it's justified to put you through this risk because of the risk that you yourself pose to society. We can think of um, jobs where people have a particular duty of care towards others, particularly vulnerable people, and they voluntarily take up these positions. Think of politicians. Uh, think of um, soldiers being sent to uh, police civilian populations. Now, one of the things that happened in Bosnia is that when uh, UN troops came in and, and other peacekeeping uh, corps, there was a great increase in um, trafficking uh, in women for sexual purposes. Mm -hmm. So when we know this, right, and, there's, and people volunteer to become soldiers, then one of the things that they might be required is in their sort of induction session, right, when they're told that they should behave in so-and-so a way, if there were a pill that could make it, um, you know, make them more sensitive, right, to the suffering of others, uh, sort of make it stick more that they shouldn't be going to brothels and encouraging this kind of trade, should we be using it? So I think, you know, there'll be different things. One of the things is cognitive enhancement is likely to uh, come to, to be available much more quickly than moral enhancement. Empathy is a cognitive enhancement. Yeah, but also greater intelligence, greater memory. Okay? Um, so we might think that, let's say parents want to choose an embryo with the genetic makeup for cognitive enhancement or to use uh, genetic alteration on an embryo to ensure that their child will be smarter. We can say, you want to do that? Fine. But then you also have to morally enhance the child, okay, to make sure that we don't create an evil genius. So, you know, there are various ways. It doesn't have to be eugenics. Okay, Paula. Um, I'm, you talk about um, evil doing as an attack, as a de facto negation on objective morality. So I'm concerned, I'm interested in a relationship between trying to work out what a program of moral enhancement might involve mm -hmm. and having any, a particular conception of what moral actions might be, and, right. what, and whether or not, for instance, if you have a certain sort of program or emphasise one thing or another, you might end up with a different set of, of moral beliefs. And just to have a very quick example about how people might disagree quite mm -hmm. radically about what's needed for moral enhancement, um, on s some ways of, 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 of viewing things, some people think the, the right thing to do in a program of moral enhancement would be to change people psychologically so they found it easier to push the fat man off the railway bridge. And some people think what you should do is to, to make people so that they, they refrain from pushing off the bridge. These are radically different things right. that you might be doing to people psychologically. So how can you sort that kind of problem out? Well, um, sorting that problem is what philosophers are all about. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> let, let me say... <laughs> so you might think, so in other words, you might have a program of moral enhancement, which is just absolutely disaster. Right. Um, but I think that is true about any kind of moral improvement to ourselves. I mean, we educate ourselves, we educate our children, we try to promote certain values in our schools, right? So we promote toleration. There's a toleration week. There's a, a pluralism week, right? Who says that toleration is good and pluralism good? Well, we have good reasons and good arguments for thinking that they are as opposed to something else. 
So, um, you know, we're not infallible, um, but I think, let's put it this way, some things are morally contentious or more morally contentious than others. And I think that we can all agree on certain, especially um, certain motives or states of mind or beliefs that are absolutely wrong, okay? And the only ones who don't agree are people who can profit from that. Um, so we think that uh, you, know, you shouldn't just uh, inflict suffering on others just because you feel like it or just because you can or just to get ahead in life. Right? So these are things that we might target um, that would be objective and that we could come to an agreement upon. Of course, it would need to be you know, open to public discussion as anything else that we do in a liberal democracy. We're not thinking about sort of inflicting it on others. Okay, in the third row here. Yes. Um, no, no, you're, you're the fourth row. <laughs> you said that. Yeah, uh, you said at, at the outset that, that evil is antagonistic to morality. Uh, my question is antagonistic from what point of view or from whose perspective? The question is uh, whether perpetrators self-consciously are antagonistic to morality. <coughs> and just, just to make an historical example very briefly, uh, there is this speech given by Heinrich Himmler mm-hmm. in, in October 43 in Poznan in Poland to his top SS officers. And his rhetoric there is, is um, one of morality or even moralistic, mm-hmm. uh, that it takes great courage to do what we are about to do here, the extermination of European Jews. Uh, it takes the best, the elite, among the elite. It takes character, mm-hmm. sacrifice. Uh, and so he, he uses all this secondary tooling, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in order to, to mobilize and to motivate people for, for this project of extermination. So, I mean, it's an old issue, uh, like you have uh, the ideology of Nazism. Uh, Is that anti-morality, or is it simply another kind (coughs) of morality? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I have a very definite view on this. I think there are objective moral facts. I think there is, therefore, an objective conception of evil that is linked to core principles, values, facts about morality. Um, I therefore think that the idea that we should be hard in the face of suffering, of course, innocent suffering, or, or not, not, not the hardness of a surgeon trying to rescue someone's life and not be overwhelmed, hard in the face of suffering is a perversion of the correct response uh, that morality requires to suffering. I mean, think of it on the most basic level, right? Um, someone is suffering, so there's pain. Um, they don't want to suffer. Why should we care? Seriously, why should we care? I think unless, to begin with, you see the fact that someone doesn't want to suffer as a reason for caring and as a reason for behaving in a certain way, you're not even engaging with objective morality. Right? <coughs> There's something else altogether happening. Okay, now in full throw. Okay. Um, if, if you have someone who is compulsorily morally enhanced, um, are they then responsible for the moral choices that they make, having been enhanced? And would it 
the reverse, if there were, you know, if an evil genius created a, a morally disenhanced mm -hmm. and the <coughs> would they be fully responsible or non-responsible for the choices they made having been? Well, they, they will be they will be as equally responsible as you and I are right now for the current state of our moral agency, um, because that state is a result of. Uh, probably, many people would agree, uh, certain biological factors, our environment, our own choices, and if we think that we are free in a way that is not determined by our biology, then um, there is that as well. Now, if we are free, if there is this, um, you know, this Kantian sort of freedom, <laughs> it doesn't matter how much I'm going to enhance a person, he's <coughs> still going to have that freedom, right? So, you know, whatever you say about moral responsibility is going to be the same, I think, uh, when we enhance people. Because the, only th the other thing to think about is that you know, nothing in genetics is, or hardly anything in genetics, sorry, um, determines us absolutely, right? There are certain uh, genes and certain diseases like Huntington that if you have it, then you'll get it. But most things... Um, they're so complex and they're only about uh, probability and then there are environmental factors and then we can influence that through our choices and reflection. So we're only talking about probabilities and we still have um, a role as agents to play in that. Okay. Joanna. Um, yeah, so thanks for your talk. Thank you. Really <coughs> deft and thought-provoking. Um, I had two sort of thoughts that might be along the same lines as things that people have said already, but um, my worry is that, you know, so I have some cousins in California who are die-hard tea party, you know, sort of right-wing <coughs> evangelical Christians, and they are dedicated, you know, they dedicate their lives to creating a very, very strong moral commitment. Mm -hmm. I happen to disagree with the, a lot of their commitments. The last thing I want is for them to sort of gain more <laughs> more power in yeah. their convictions and also to be able to have a sort of standing in which they're able to promote this through some sort of requirement for you know to yeah. for other people to take yeah thank you for bringing that up i think uh, that for me is one of the most uh, one of the strongest reasons against any form of enhancement Basically, I want to keep an exit strategy open um, because, you know, you never know where you're going to end up. And I think m more people are mistaken about morality, in my view, than correct about it. Therefore, I will not want to give them the choice uh, to do that. So the question, I think, is also what kind of moral enhancements we're talking about. If we're talking about... Um, Take oxytocin, for example. We talked that it promotes trust, right? So we can use it um, in conflict resolution situations and so on. But um, people have also used it to um, sort of, not drug, but, but they've also used it on young girls and women, okay, um, who they then uh, traffic for sexual purposes in order to make them more compliant. So here's a wonderful way of abusing something that could potentially be very helpful. So, you know, these things need to be looked at, and it might be that um, giving us more power to control the way people will behave is actually just bad. You know, um, even in the transitional stage, we won't be able to get through the transitional stage. We'll just sort of get worse. 
So I don't know. We have to think about this clearly. I'm sort of trying to look at the... Can I follow up? Because I have a second very one. Quickly, yeah. Very quickly, very quickly. So the second one is just on, on the meta-ethical side. So mm -hmm. like with the idea of the, something being antagonist to, to mm -hmm. objective moral facts. Um, what about... I mean, where do you stand on sort of philosophers who would be promoting an anti-realist view or philosophers who would say, be arguing that there's no objective... No, no people who are arguing that there's no objective moral facts. Is that, is well, that I'll, 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 I don't know, I'll send them, I'll send them to Sudan and let them look around um, if they still think... I mean, would they, would they really think that there's absolutely no objective moral facts? Or would they be willing to say, you know what, at least in these things, at least when an adult takes a three-year-old and rapes her, okay, that at least is bad, and not just because I think about it or the culture thinks about it. If they're willing to say that, then we can talk. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Uh, so we can see hands a You, sir. Yes, me. Yes. If um, you're putting up your hand now, you're basically too late. So I'm sorry <laughs> about that. Um, I don't know quite another way to put this, but I'm quite alarmed um, by this paper. Mm -hmm. um, and I try and be very intellectual and self-conscious about it, and say, look, clearly one of the reasons why I'm alarmed is this language of enhancement, right? That there's something with the, we associate in our culture to a whole range of dystopian imagery, and I'm trying to get away from that. But even trying to get away from that, I'm quite alarmed. Because, well, I'm, I'm just going to, I can't outline all the reasons, there are so many reasons, but let me just put them into two general groups, right? One is for all the general conventional reasons which we are generally very cautious and disturbed about language of biological enhancement, right? Okay. And I don't think the analogy with what well, we already are based upon philosophical ideas in education and so forth is apt at all, because education is something which is cognitively active and involves people who undergo it actively processing thoughts and debates and ideas, right? Now, okay, there are unfortunate indoctrinating versions which don't involve that, but we, are, we don't think that's a good idea, right? Mm -hmm. That doesn't seem to me to be true of, of, of biomedical enhancement, right? So there's, and there's the whole range of concerns around that that we all find about playing God and, and associated with you know, eugenics and so on and so forth, but there's that set of concerns. And, and I'm, I'm not quite clear on quite why this sort of proposal isn't also in danger of those sorts of concerns. The second set of concerns relates to things other people have raised in their questions, which I also think it rests on a false account of how people are immoral. Mm -hmm. But the kind of psychological process, and I agree with you, there probably are genetic and psychological processes which underpin evil, but I don't think any of those processes are inherently good or evil. I think all the kinds of psychological processes, including things like empathy, can also be deployed for evil ends. I think mm -hmm. it very much depends upon the ideational framework with which they're articulated, right? And we see in all events of evil, massively convicted people absolutely convinced that they're doing morally what is right, absolutely capable of empathy, I would say, mm -hmm. still engaging in these acts. Mm -hmm. So in light of that, but I don't think it will work, um, and in light of the other concerns, I find it very alarming. Now, and I really want to do, you know, say it's a very open inquiry because I understand why we want to investigate this kind of thing, but, but how do you deal with those kind of concerns, or do you not share them at all? Um, let's start with the second question first, okay? Um, I think that moral enhancements by themselves, just like a sort of a natural disposition by itself, uh, isn't enough, right? You need, you need more education, you need role models, you need people to show you how to do it. Sometimes there are exceptional cases, as I said, of people who are different. 
And um, I've spoken to people who say that from a very young age, their parents told them that they were obsessed with issues of fairness or couldn't suffer to see someone getting hurt. Now, you can imagine taking that kind of disposition and perverting it so that you know, they're only concerned with fairness in a very strict sense and so on. But then again, that introduces the role of education. So it's not as if I think that there's anything um, you know, that we can just enhance in one way and we will be assured of better moral behavior. <coughs> but I think that there are certain, um, um, certain psychological states, and it doesn't matter at the moment um, you know, what exactly their biology is, but if we can affect it their biology, then we would be, promote, we, we would be more likely to promote uh, good behavior. Because um, people who are generally sensitive to the suffering of others and um, who haven't been taught to restrict this sensitivity only to one group as opposed to another are less likely to commit evil, uh, especially if there isn't a collective framework for them to do that. So I don't think that it's absolutely right that all psychological states are just neutral and that they don't sort of not push you, but, you know, if we have a <coughs> classical lock, then, um, you know, are they combinations on the good behavior or the bad behavior? Um, and as for more generally moral enhancement, uh, I mean, I can talk about this more now, but it's a big topic. I, I like, again, I, I don't think that... Um, that the arguments for moral enhancement, the, the in principle arguments are very good. They usually have to do with naturalness and so on. Because uh, moral enhancement is not meant to replace, it, to replace education, then you still get this cognitive engagement and so on. So I, I don't think the arguments are very good, but I, I completely recognize that sort of going into this enhancement debate, I think it raises all the red flags that we have. So... Okay. I have a question over here. Yes. I don't know if you're uh, familiar with Habermas' uh, discussion of eugenics and, uh, and you know about it? Yeah. I know of it and I know a little of it. Yeah. His uh, line of thought is that uh, you're not, um, you, you tamper with accountability <coughs> and mm -hmm. responsibility as the basis for moral in, in this, you know, society. Uh, and uh, there is a difference between education and, and uh, fostering and so on, uh, which can be renegotiated and, and uh, um, kind of uh, moral enhancement through uh, biotechnology and uh, eugenics, which is that um, other people are in charge of initiates and, and, and therefore can be blamed for or it can serve as an excuse for those who, who uh, have uh, come into existence as a result of such uh, decisions. Mm -hmm. So what do you think about this? Doesn't this apply also to the you know, moral enhancement as you describe it? Mm -hmm. The thing is, we already affect um, sort of the moral capabilities of our children by the choices we make. If, I choose, if I'm pregnant and I choose to drink quite a lot, right, the, I'm going to affect the cognitive development of the child and you know, I might create a child who is less able to um, 
um, to control impulses, right? And then with the right environment, since we all have uh, negative as well as positive impulses, that would lead to wrongdoing and harming others. Um, Again, I, I don't see moral enhancement as qualitatively different from other kinds of intervention, unless it turns out that our biology is, uh, determines our behavior to a much greater extent than we thought, and we have a very, you know, a great ability to fine-tune the way we intervene and therefore control people, and then I think, you know, we move on to a completely different game. Um, and then it might be a case of realizing, okay, we can do this to human beings, and no, we're not going to do it. Um, and that would have to be a moral choice, because we want to, um, we recognize the potential for abuse, or we recognize the inherent uh, worth of people who are sort of in control of their lives, or are agents and responsible, and we don't want to detract from that um, any more than, than biology already does. Okay, second row here, and I think that's that's the last question. Yes. No, second row. Yes. I, I share the alarm of um, the previous speaker, and I, I want to ask two questions. One is, you said in response to her question, I think it was that you need an exit strategy. Mm. I think you also need an entry strategy which is to explain why it is that this, the realization of this possibility would be better than the existing undoubtedly clumsy ways mm -hmm. we have of dealing. It's one part. The other question I have is that um, you talked about um, the moral enhancement being um, voluntary and supererogatory because we don't want to use people as means. But of course, if we voluntarily opt into mm -hmm. it and accept it and use it supererogatory, we are nevertheless using ourselves as means, which given the county <coughs> premises is just as wrong as it is to do it to others. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that we can use ourselves as a means to various ends, whether it's to climb Everest, whether it's to find a cure for cancer. Um, that is fine. I think this is what it means to uh, have control over your life. If you look at the reasons, you come to a decision, um, you can choose your projects in life, and you can devote your life single-mindedly to, to a certain pursuit. I don't want others deciding what that thing should be for me. Or, or myself deciding it for other people. Now, I realize that giving this paper, it might seem like um, I'm saying, you know, let's go and enhance ourselves and each other. Um, I'm not. I think the, the most important thing to, I mean, as you said, we need an entry strategy. Why should uh, a situation in which we enhance ourselves or are enhanced is in any way better than what we have right now and what we might be able to achieve simply through better education and better resources and raising awareness and all that. Um, I don't have an answer for that, and I'm very sympathetic to uh, the very realistic possibility that you're right, that actually we should stay with what we have um, and not go forward because it's too risky. 
But what I wanted to try and think about, because I've read all this enhancement debate, is um, you know people talk about a reason to enhance, or that it's permissible to enhance. And one of the things to consider is, well, how far should I enhance? And another thing that is to consider is the fact that if I look at the people who are actually fighting evil in the world, well, the moral burden isn't fairly distributed. Some people not only just sort of find themselves in a situation where they have to respond, whereas I didn't, um, they also seem sort of naturally less able to look away and live with it, live with themselves. So why should they have to, again, bear the additional costs if there was this possibility of moral enhancement that people are talking about? So this is sort of the motivation of why I should want to look at this project, not because I think necessarily that this is where we should go. You're absolutely right about the interest strategy. I'm sorry if you missed out on your question. I realise there are about half a dozen people who did, um, but it shows what a good talk we've had with so many people who are <laughs> engaging. And well, we now have a half-hour coffee break, which you can get into. <laughs>